He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 56th episode of Working with the Word. Grab your Bible. We are in John chapter 8 today. Just so you know what's coming up, this will be our last John episode of the year before closing out 2021 with a really exciting series of interviews. Jeff is going to be previewing that at the end, so stay tuned. So today, we're not taking the time to read chapter 8, so if you're not familiar with the text, we want to remind you and encourage you to please stop here and read on your own, read chapter 8 before proceeding. Most of the chapter is going to be a tense debate between Jesus and the unbelieving Jews. And we're going to learn a lot about Jesus and the Jews and their unbelief in him. And we're going to see Jesus making some great I am statements. But before we get into that, we want to talk about the first 11 verses of John 8. This is the story, the very famous story of the woman that's caught in adultery. The Jews bring this woman to Jesus with a question. And so why do we need to start here, Jeff? Well, I guess technically this really begins at the very end of chapter 7 with the way we have our chapters and verses divided for the past many hundred years. Not how it would have originally been done in Greek, but this is the way that we're familiar with our Bibles now. Somewhere around John chapter 7, verse 53, hopefully whatever Bible app or whatever Bible translation you're using, your translators and your editors have done something to either put in some brackets or an asterisk of some kind or some type of superscript number that's going to show there's a textual question about this passage. Something we've talked about before in chapter 5 with the middle of Mm -hmm. verse 3 and the end of verse 4. So this is the footnote about that from the English Standard Version, or at least are going to show up in a lot of English Standard Versions, and a footnote down at the bottom, they'll emphasize this. The earliest manuscripts do not include John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Others add the passage here, or after chapter 7 and verse 36, or after chapter 21 and verse 25, or even after Luke chapter 21 (laughs) and verse 38, with variations to the text. So what does that mean? First of all, there's the idea of the earliest manuscripts mean those that are closest to the original source of when John or even potentially Luke would have written their original Gospels. And those do not have this story here. Again, as I'm always going to say, these are not evil people who are trying to cut out parts of the Bible like Thomas Jefferson did when he literally (laughs) cut out parts of the Bible. Yeah, that's an issue. Here, this is more of a scholarly, textual, looking at all the evidence. We have lots of later manuscripts that do include this, and even in other languages, but the earlier manuscripts don't have this. So the question really is, is this original to John's gospel itself, or was this a later edition? It could be that this is a true story that did actually happen, but does it actually belong here in the gospel on its own? If you're interested, there's a lot more detail in something like the Net Bible, 
I don't remember what NET stands for, but if you have a Bible app like YouVersion or if you look up online NET Bible, you can probably find that, and they have a lot of footnotes about why they make the decisions they do for either word choices or even where they do or don't include passages, something like this, or might they even say for John chapter 5. So when we come across passages like this, maybe you've never noticed those brackets or those asterisks before, but now if, if you're aware of that and you're coming to across to something, and as people who want to honor God's Word, the question here is really, what do we do with this? What do we do with mm-hmm. passages like John chapter 8, 1 through 11? Number one, don't let this shake your faith or your confidence in the rest of the Bible. You can trust that this is here based on you know, some other evidence in other places, but the translators and editors want you to be aware of you know, the reality that earlier manuscripts that are reliable do not have this. And that's great to hear from Christians themselves, because a lot of times the other places we hear this are from unbelievers who are trying to get us then to not just have a lack of trust in these 12 verses or so, but getting us to have a lack of trust in all of Scripture and all of authority. Don't let that happen to your faith. And I think it's helpful to remember that I mean, we we have these notes in our Bible for a reason, and that shows that these the those that look at this the, the manuscripts and try to compare the manuscripts and the differences that there are the editors are really doing their best to give us as much information as possible. I think that's why the Net Bible is so valuable in in times like this. Textual criticism is a highly specialized discipline that is focused on determining the original text of the Bible. And if you're not familiar with that kind of idea, we don't have the original writings of John or any of the the books of the Bible. All we have are the manuscripts that have been copied. And we have so many of them that give us confidence. And the more that we discover, the more manuscripts there are, the actually better we can determine what the original text says. And, And so, yeah, we just need to remember to trust our Bibles. When we come across a bracketed section or maybe a variant reading or something, have to remember that they're actually pretty far and few between. This is actually one of the longer of those sections. There aren't many passages that are of questionable integrity that are this long. Mm -hmm. And really, even if it doesn't belong here, it doesn't really change anything about what we understand about Jesus, does it? It doesn't change truth. It's not a groundbreaking passage or anything. There's not something here that you're not going to find elsewhere or that contradicts anything mm-hmm. else. So, yeah, I, I I think your point is well taken. We can't let that shake our faith in the rest of the Bible. I want to make sure that I point out here, too, that when we talk about textual criticism, I'm not a textual critic scholar. Emerson is not a textual critic scholar. I think at best we've read about other people who mm-hmm. are Textual. I mean, those are people who have spent thousands and thousands of hours. You've heard of maybe Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule to become an expert or a master in something. Those are people who have done that. I've spent you know, maybe an hour total in my life, maybe more than that, looking at some of these things. Emerson, you've got a little bit of a Greek knowledge, right? And I have a little bit. A little bit. I have very little. These are people who they can look at original Greek or at least, you know, some of that, and they can you know read that itself and translate on their own. These people know what they're talking about. Now, we live in a world where 
experts aren't always trusted. And there's obviously a point to say that even as someone with a textual critic degree or textual criticism degree is still a man and they may still have influences to be aware of. But the point is we can generally trust them. And most importantly, we can trust God's word. Mm -hmm. What's going on here in this story? Like we mentioned, this is probably a story that many of us are familiar with. Just a quick setup. The Pharisees come up to Jesus. They bring this woman who's been caught in adultery, and they say, this woman was literally caught in adultery, and it would be expected that we would stone her to death. And they're asking Jesus, what do you think about that? In verse 6 of John chapter 8, it specifically says, they ask this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. I don't know what they were, were they expecting Jesus to not stone her? Were they expecting Jesus to stone her and say, look how evil and violent he is? No, they obviously have a malicious intent here right. in some way. But how does Jesus respond to their accusation and to their their mindset and their setup, their sting here? Well, Jesus knows exactly what they're up to, and he doesn't I mean, he doesn't fall into their trap. So he basically just sidesteps their question to highlight their maliciousness and their their greed and their prejudice, their hypocrisy, really, because I mean, there's, there's the first key or the first signal that something's wrong here is that they didn't bring the man. In mm-hmm. the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by some form of capital punishment. Right. But there's a couple of places in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that emphasize that, that both the man and the woman were held accountable to that standard. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the first signal that, hey, something's off here. The point that Jesus is making in not answering them and then later on answering them by saying, if you think that you're sinless in this matter, you cast the first stone. Yeah. He's pointing out that that they're not really concerned about justice. They're not concerned about the law and upholding the law. If they were, then they wouldn't be here and they wouldn't be doing this. And so what Jesus is doing, he's just pointing out, look, you're you're just trying to use this woman as a pawn in your attempt to bring me down or discredit me or something, and you're using the law to your own advantage, and it's not going to work. And so I think the main point of this story, when every one of them leaves one by one, beginning with the older, Jesus straightens up and says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. I think the main point of this story is just seeing Jesus's perceptiveness, seeing his mercy and his forgiveness. I mean, it was clear this woman was guilty of adultery mm-hmm. and Jesus forgave her. And and that, again, is something that Jesus had the authority to do. He has done this multiple times already in, not necessarily in the gospel of John, but in other places. And so you see Jesus's mercy here. And, and that's exactly what he came to do for all of us, mm-hmm. is to confront us about our sin but not condemn us. I mean, John has said <laughs> he did not come to this world to condemn it, but to save it. And and so you see that kind of illustrated in this story. And then he has an expectation of what's going to happen after that. I'm going right. to forgive you of your sin, but don't make that a part of your life anymore. So as we move into verse 12, we're getting back into Jerusalem. Chapter 8, and those first few verses take place on the Mount of Olives. But chapter 8, verse 12, we're back in Jerusalem with this discussion Mm -hmm. with the chief priests and the Pharisees. And really, from verse 12 through verse 29 or so, 
we have this section where Jesus is talking with these more of the focusing on the religious leaders here. And we want to really emphasize Jesus making this statement where he says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. There are so many callbacks that happen between what we see in verse 12 through verse 29, just as what I mean by that, as far as things that we've seen already in the Gospel of John itself. One thing that they're going to say to Jesus in this section is, you testify about yourself, and so your testimony can't be true. We've made that point before. If I make a claim about something and I'm the only one who makes that claim, that's questionable. That's sketchy. Mm-hmm. That's just good evidence and you know way we would evaluate evidence. If I'm making a claim all on my own and I have nobody else to back that up, all I have is my own word. But Jesus has addressed this already in chapter 5. He talks about how John the Baptist has testified about him. And in fact, John the Baptist does that throughout chapter 1 and even in chapter 3. He talks about how the Word, the Scripture, his Father, the signs that he's doing, all of those things testify about Jesus. He's, Jesus says something to the effect of, where I'm going, you cannot come. He talks about that in chapter 7, verse 33 through verse 36. And Jesus even brings up the point with them here that the fact of where I'm going, you cannot come, and how you will die in your sins. It seems that a fact of a connection between how what he's talking about is the fact that they won't believe in him, means as he returns to his father, they won't be in that place of eternal life, but they will face death itself. He also talks a lot in this section, as we've seen basically since chapter 3 over and over again, this idea of how Jesus and the Father are closely connected in a way that they have never seen before, and thus they struggle to comprehend this idea. We may even go back to chapter 1 and talk about the fact that the Word was with God and the Word was God, and even that's a way of talking about how Jesus and the Father are connected. Now, the fact that they can't comprehend this, this isn't really more of a intelligence issue. This seems to be much more of a heart issue. We're not talking about this idea that they can't intellectually comprehend the ideas or the instructions or the teaching about all of that. It's not so much that they don't have evidence or don't have a way to understand or see intellectually and to grasp for themselves. I mean, they have the scriptures. They know the scriptures even. But from this, this is much more of a heart issue about why they can't see this connection between Jesus and the Father. Jesus is going to, towards the end of this, around verse 28, verse 29, talk about the fact that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. He's talked about that in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. That's not just a looking back, that's a looking forward to his crucifixion and how his crucifixion is an important part of God's plan in order to bring salvation to the world. But this is the second of these I am statements that Jesus makes here in verse 12. I am the light. He's talked about how I am the bread of life in chapter 6 mm-hmm. as well. And when Jesus talks about himself being the light of the world, this could be a callback to chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and this light brings life to men, or this could be a callback to chapter 3, verse 19 through verse 21, how those in darkness don't appreciate the light because they'd rather stay in darkness and continue to live in their sin. But we even see some of that here. He says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, will be, but will have the light of life. All of that to say that what Jesus is doing here is kind of two things with that light. Number one, he's drawing people to him who want to come to that light and find what that light has to offer, to find and to accept the fact that that light exposes the sin and the wickedness in their life. But that light also has a way to change them and purify them, to save them, and to not be lost in that dark, wicked state. 
But the second thing that happens with Jesus being the light of the world is there are going to be those who are going to continue to try to run away and hide in the darkness. Uh, maybe you've heard the illustration before, I've heard before in Bible classes and sermons where people will mention, you know, think about a cockroach. You walk into a room, you go in your bathroom, or if you've ever lived somewhere where it has a lot of cockroaches or your garage or wherever, and you flip on a light, those cockroaches are going to go hide under something to get into some type of shadow. And you think about, that's what people are acting like here. Jesus comes and he's exposing what's wrong with their thinking, with their hearts, as he's doing throughout this chapter, not just with the Pharisees, but even into the next part as well, as he's talking with this crowd of people who believe in him. And that's going to make an issue for them, as he is the light that's trying to expose the darkness, this theme of the clash between light and dark. Yeah, that viv- that that imagery of the cockroaches scattering is so vivid in my memory, because I grew up in South Georgia, where there's a lot of those. <laughs> those are very common experience. And, and maybe this is something you brought up earlier uh, in a previous episode. In a, there's there's also moths that are attracted to light, and we want to be those moths um, that, like, there's something glowing over there. And I don't know what it is about moths that are attracted to light, but they are. And uh, if Jesus is light, we, 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 we are drawn to him. We should be drawn to him. And we want his light to expose our darkness, and we're okay with that. Uh, because we know that that's the path of salvation. We want to walk in the light. Mm-hmm. Moths sometimes die when they run into the light. The The way that that <laughs> analogy ends between us and moths is that as we go to the light, we fall, we find life rather than being zapped to death. But I guess in a way we are zapped to death and then made a new creation, right? That's right. So that's kind of a whole new, that goes to all different types of places. In verse 30, we're transitioning to maybe a larger group that Jesus is going to have some discussions with for the rest of the chapter. And in chapter 8, verse 30, it says, he's saying these things, many believed in him. Something we've been talking about for the past few chapters is the escalation of the controversy, even leading to conflict with Jesus. And we're seeing people who have left Jesus in droves, like in chapter 6, when he says that stuff about eat my flesh and drink my blood and how you can't do that because you don't really believe here are people who do actually believe in Jesus, but as Emerson and I have talked about, this is kind of like John using believe almost in quotation marks. Maybe that's mm-hmm. some of us, you know, just getting that interpretation, that idea. But this doesn't really seem to be the true type of belief like we see of, G- of Peter, the true type of belief we see of Peter and the other apostles there at the end of chapter 6. This seems to be more of that kind of, we want Jesus to be king. We want to lift you up and we believe in you. But that's going to take a very different turn by the time we get to the end of this section. This leads to another great I am here in this last part of chapter 8. Yeah, so uh, as you were talking about how John is using belief there in verse 30, it reminded me of in the parable of the sower, you've got the four kinds of soils and it's kind of like the rocky ground where the seed is planted and it springs up immediately but when the sun comes out and it scorches it, it doesn't have any root, and so it just withers away. That's exactly what you see happening in this chapter, maybe even on, on a greater level, because these same people that come to believe in him in verse 30, you look at the very end of the chapter, says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus <laughs> hid himself and went out of the temple. So they go from believing in him to wanting to drag him out of the city and kill him. Yeah, And it's like, well, what? What happens in between? What what causes that? And I think it's because their their faith is shallow, superficial. 
they don't quite understand what Jesus is saying and what he's getting at. Kind of what we talked about with John chapter 6 as well. But in, in verses 31 through the end of the chapter, um, Jesus is going to push them even further to recognize who he is. And again, it's not so much of they can't comprehend intellectually what he's saying, because I think they do. Mm-hmm. I think they clearly understand on a logical level what he's saying. That's why they eventually try to kill him, but it's they're not willing to accept it. They've drawn a line in their mind against Jesus. He's over there, we're over here, and we're not we're we're not willing to cross that line. We're not willing to concede. We're not willing to even submit to what he says. Yeah. So without getting into much detail to kind of summarize how this conversation goes, Jesus has talked about who his father is in the beginning of the chapter. Uh, he, there's that connection. He wants to do the father's will. But then he's going to talk about who their father is. And Jesus' father is clearly God, but who is their father? In verse 39, they answer and say to him, Abraham is our father. And so they kind of wear that like a, a badge of honor or with pride, and in this case, kind of an arrogant way. And Jesus basically says to them, nope, <laughs> if you were really doing the deeds of your father Abraham, then you would, you would be listening to me. You'd be trusting in me because that's what Abraham did with God. He listened to him. And in verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. This, I think, is kind of it's kind of a little bit of a dig against Jesus, knowing you know Jesus's birth. He was not born of Joseph's seed, and so with the the unbelieving community, how is that going to look? You know, Mary is a virgin having a child. There's this rumor, perhaps, that Jesus was born of of an immoral relationship or out of wedlock, and so they're kind of attacking Jesus here. We have one Father, God, and Jesus says to them, "Wrong again." <laughs> if if you were, if you really loved God, then you would love me because I came from God. And he says to them, one of the strongest things that he says in the gospel, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> yeah, you think about how clear, and, and Jesus doesn't hold back any punches here. Mm-hmm. He really, you, we were talking about how Jesus is the light of the world and how his light exposes darkness. Well, there it is. Yeah, He's exposing the real source of unbelief and rebellion. It comes from Satan himself. Now, obviously, these Jews do not want to be of the devil. and That's why they push back against him. But that's where their blindness comes in. They can't see really what they're doing. And so Jesus points out the reason you're of your father, the devil, is because you're doing two things. Number one, you want to kill me. And number two, you're not listening to the truth. You're listening to a lie. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what Satan does. He's a murderer. He's a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And so, again, Jesus is really just kind of exposing their unbelief. Mm -hmm. And so... They attack him again in verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? If you really wanted to insult somebody, I guess you would just call him a Samaritan. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what they do with with, uh, Jesus. Jesus doesn't give up, though. He just just goes on, "If, if, If you believe in me, then you will never die. And so at the end of the chapter, Jesus makes 
this another great I am statement. In verse 58, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, I guess we're going to maybe read the context a little bit. Verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not fifty years old yet, and have you seen Abraham? And then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So I think what Jesus is, is highlighting here is, if you really believe in me, then you will come to accept who I am on my own terms and not, not on your own. It's ironic to me that they say you're not even 50 years old yet. Abraham's been dead for like 1,800 years at this point. It <laughs> yeah. seems such a random number to pick, but it, I think it's just, again, showing more of the heart things rather than the mind. The mind's not really involved in this section, it seems like. Right. It seems like it's more of they're just really digging in that passion and that hatred of Jesus here. Yeah, they're definitely digging in their heels. And what Jesus says in verse 59, that I am is is really, really remarkable. Jesus is taking God's personal name and applying it to himself here. This is a, a reference to the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is being commissioned to go back to Egypt, bring out the people, and he says, well, who, who shall I say has sent me? And God answers, I am who I am. And he's just speaking of his eternal nature there. And Jesus is applying that to himself, both grammatically and contextually. Grammatically speaking, he is saying, before Abraham was born, or the word that he uses can also mean came into existence, began to exist. Before he existed, I am. Now, it's like when we say I am, usually we follow that up with, some sort of like adjective or something like I'm hungry or I'm going bald. <laughs> um, but Jesus doesn't. All he says is I am. And so not even grammatically, but just the whole point he's making is, look, you guys are so focused on Abraham that you don't realize that I am eternal and I have always existed. There is no past, present, future with Jesus. I, I just, I just am. I just exist. And for Jesus to say that, a human being to say that, is blasphemous mm -hmm. if it is not true. And so that's why they pick up stones to throw at him, because they think it is untrue, despite all of the evidence that Jesus has laid before them. And I do think it's important that Jesus doesn't say this at the beginning of his ministry. Yeah. He lays a lot of groundwork, a lot of evidence. He gives a lot of reasons to to look at him as a credible source in in order to lead up to this point where he is making the claim to be God. Right. That really is remarkable to see him saying that. This is one of the clearest passages, by the way, where Jesus claims to be God. Mm -hmm. There are sometimes people might try to argue that Jesus never really claimed to be God. That was just something that his followers attached to him later on. But it's hard to see this any other way. <laughs> yeah. Jesus is clearly calling himself God and taking that name for himself. Mm -hmm. So with these great I am statements and with what we've seen throughout this chapter, 
a big so what takeaway from here where we talked about how Jesus has this discussion, how he's been saying, like he's been saying for a while, you know, his will is in line with his father's will. He's been talking to the crowds about who they think that their father is. The question isn't really so much about, you know, how did the Jews answer that? Or even, you know, it's a big, big, big part of what we're talking about is what Jesus says about all of that. But for us, we need to answer that question. Who's mm-hmm. your father? Is it God or is it Satan? Again, look at those texts there in chapter 8, verse 41 through verse 45. Read those again and think about how you would not just answer that question and how you're supposed to answer that question, but how are you answering that question based on your life and the things that you're saying? That's the big thing to take away from here in this section. I tell you what, that's a hard question to answer objectively. This is where we might need to get out our red pen and mm-hmm. and and not circle the text itself, but circle my own heart and and evaluate where where we are individually. Mm-hmm. So a challenge for today, since we are ending this segment in John for the year, we want you to write out three things that you've learned about Jesus so far in John. There is a lot of familiar things in John, maybe the miracles that Jesus has done, or maybe the statements that Jesus has made, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of life. But we want you to focus on three things that you've learned new in John. So take the time to do that. From John chapters 1 through 8, what has been striking to you? Three things that you have learned about Jesus from this part of the Gospel of John. Like Emerson mentioned at the beginning, this is our last John episode for 2021. We're kind of leaving you on a cliffhanger. Jesus almost dies. People are getting ready to kill him. What's going to happen next? You probably already know some of this, but I guess you'll have to stay tuned. Sometime in early January 2022, Lord willing, we'll get back into the study and continue to do some inductive studies from OIA uh, type of study of the Gospel of John. Starting next week, we'll begin what we call our Final Four series for the months of November and December. We'll be releasing new episodes bi-weekly as Emerson and I are trying to take a break and slow down during the holiday season. Last year, we focused on daily Bible reading. We had some conversations with Mark Roberts and Sarah Renz and talked about some of those things ourselves. This year, we'll conclude with a series of interviews on the subject of Bible study with blank or Bible study in different kind of relationships. A lot of what we do and talk about regularly on our program is more focused on study that we do as individuals. And there's value in obviously doing that. We're blessed to have so easy access to the Bible in our language to be able to read and think and study and meditate upon it. But there's also value in studying the Bible with other people as well. So here's what's on the docket. We'll begin by talking with Ryan Joy and Brian Sheely, also known as the Bible Geeks, about studying the Bible with a good friend and developing a good relationship in that way with a friend to study the Bible. We'll be talking with Matt and Jen Schmidt, who are the masterminds behind the Intimate Covenant podcast, as well as everything else that Intimate Covenant does, and be looking at Bible study with your spouse. Hannah and Eddie Jinks will be on speaking with us about studying the Bible as a family, especially focusing on how parents can help their kids learn about God, Jesus, and the story of salvation for their lives. And finally, We'll talk with Marty Broadwell about studying the Bible in a Bible class setting, or maybe you're more familiar with the idea of kind of a small group. Whether we're the teacher or leader of that group, or whether we're just the student or group members, what can we do together to effectively study the Bible in this way? 
So again, starting next week, that's November 9th, we'll release our episodes with Ryan and Brian, and then we'll be releasing a new episode every other week. Around the time of the new year then, we'll get back into the last two-thirds or so that we have of the book of John, as well as the growing list of difficult passages you, our audience, has submitted as well. We hope you'll stay subscribed and stay tuned for this particular series. Thank you for listening to Working with the Word today. Remember, if you have a difficult passage or book of the Bible or anything you'd like for us to cover in a future episode of Working with the Word, you can always find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.